Hello and welcome to episode 32 of the Alfa Romeo Driver podcast, brought to you by the Alfa Romeo Owners Club. And this afternoon I'm delighted to have with me best-selling crime fiction author and former Owners Club GT registrar, James Oswald. Good afternoon, James. Good afternoon. We've been trying to set this up for a, a while. Um, I know you've been really, really busy on the farm. We'll talk a little bit about that later on. Um, but typically when we do these things, we, we kind of start off with, with why we're talking to you in the first place. So how did you get involved in, in Alphas originally? Um, it goes a, a long, long way back. My first ever car after I passed my driving test in 1985 was uh, an Alfetta GTV. And it sounds like quite a posh car for your first car, but actually it was, the, it was I think it was 10 years old when I bought it. It cost me £750. Uh, and then I started trying to find some insurance for it, and it cost more to insure than it did to buy, even in 1985. I had that when I went up to university. I had that for about four years, that car. Uh, and then it, it dissolved on me in the way of these things. But I, that was, you know, I, I caught the alpha bug then. And I'd always fancied a spider. I remember when I was very young, going out to France, my uncle lived and worked in France and, and uh, went to stay with him. And he took us to, to this chateau. And parked outside the chateau was what I, I, I later discovered was a duetto spider. Uh, I didn't know what it was at the time. Just this had this wonderful Alfa Romeo script on the back of, the, of that, that round tail um, boot. And I just thought it was the coolest thing. Uh, and and I, you know, once I got into Alfa Romeo's, I suddenly realised, oh, this is this car that I remembered from when I was about sort of six or seven or something. So I, I, I tried to find one of those that I could afford around about the time when I graduated. And I, I got a mad idea that I'd buy a, a beat, you know, a, a crashed one and restore it. And I, so I bought that. Uh, I bought a Spider in 1991, I think it was. I've still got it to this day. And um, I did restore it. It took me a very long time. In the interim, I've had a I've had a 33, which was a great little car. I loved that when I was living just outside Edinburgh, and uh, just south of Edinburgh, and I discovered McLennan's garage in Lonehead was very useful for keeping that on the road. Uh, but it too finally dissolved, as a lot of alphas of that era did. Yeah. Um, and then I've had I've had some non Alfa Romeo cars down the year, but we'll say very little about them. I, I was working it out before coming on. I've had four GTs. I've had two diesels and two V6s. And um, I used to, I did run the, the GT register for a while. And I've also got, I've now got a, a, a GTA sport wagon, um, which I've had for about 10 years. Um, so yeah, it was that first car just by accident. I, I, and that's what got me into Alphas. And and how did you get involved with the club? You said you were the GT registrar. How did that come about? Well, it started off with this with the Spider, the, the Duetto, and I bought that. And it was it was a, a basket case. It had been in a, a, a an accident, which had taken the front of of it off. So it had no. So it was exactly energy. what you were looking for. Yeah, it was exactly what I was looking for. Uh, um, and uh, and I thought it was red. Turned out when I started stripping it back that it was originally white. And it yeah, it, it had had a hard life up to then. I. I bought that and then I sort of needed to find parts and and people who knew how to work on them and and, and things like that and, and I I got used to get the classic car magazines and everything and I think there was probably an ad for the Alfa Romeo Owners Club so I just joined uh got the that was back when the when the the magazine was a little sort of a5 thing or whatever that came through uh and uh, that was yes and I mainly joined so that I could find out where all the supplies of, you know difficult to find spare parts were 
I got a little bit involved with the Scottish section, but not very, very much. Found out about that. I think there was a there was an Alpha Garage in Edinburgh that closed down, and I remember going to the. They had a part sale organised there, which I found out through the club, which was really useful because I needed a a new front bumper, one one of the front bumpers for the Duetto, which were really difficult to find and really expensive. And they just happened to have one on the shelf in, I think it was Fraser's Garage, it was called or something, in, in Edinburgh. And they had one on the shelf and it cost me 80 quid. And I thought, that's a bargain. So that was kind of why I joined. I didn't really do much in the club because the, the Stider took, took decades to get back on the road because I either had time to work on it or money, but never both. And so it sat in a shed at the, in, on the farm for a long time. But I, I did come into some money at one point and needed a, a, a daily driver. And I was I almost bought a 156 sport wagon. I always liked the sport wagon, but we were in living in Wales at the time and went to Mangaletsi's and had a test drove a, 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 sport, wagon, a sport wagon, but also saw that the, the new new then GT had only just come out. And it was a bit more than I could really afford, but uh, did a little bit of sort of finance man maths, as they say. Um, got the GT and, and that kind of re, rekindled my first GT it was 2005 and I got in touch with the club and said you know is, is anyone who's the GT register um, who's running the GT register so we haven't got one do you want to run it uh, I foolishly said yes I ended up doing that for about five or six years I think and working my way through all the various different GT models at the time so did you start with the diesel or did you start with the busso no, I started with the diesel because I we I, I was living in Wales at the time. My partner worked on a research farm. She, she was the um, a senior research scientist on a research farm near Aberystwyth, uh, but the farm is in northeast Fife, so it's about four hundred miles between the two. Which we travelled quite a lot. We do that sort of maybe once every couple of months, if not more often than that. Uh, I didn't really fancy twenty three, twenty four miles to the gallon doing that journey. Whereas the diesel, you could do it all on you know, there and halfway back again on the tank. So yeah. Um, so when did the busso come along then? I well, I always fancied one. I, I I'd had the I'd had a my original GT the, the 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 diesel for about I guess three years, and the mileage we weren't doing quite as much mileage, and I thought well, well maybe we could maybe I could justify having a V6. I was getting a, much more into the club and things like that as well, uh, and I. So I, th- I guess that would have been about, I suppose, 2008. I got the first one, and it. I, I traded in. The, I, I, there was. I got it in Bristol, a little garage in Bristol. It wasn't a, a, a main dealer or anything. I was just looking around for something I, that would fit in, fit my budget, and it was great. It was a lovely car. I really enjoyed it, but then our mileage started to go back up again because, rather tragically, my parents died in a car accident, which is how I ended up coming back to Fife to take on the family farm. So I was suddenly going back up up and down and up and down. So I thought I couldn't really justify the V6 and traded it in for another diesel, a newer diesel. And that was, so I guess that would have been around about 2008, 2009. So the first V6 I didn't have for very long, but I missed it. Once I got the diesel, I really missed it. And and I, the second one, I I always fancied, and I'm trying to, trying to remember that it's a very purpley metallic red. Is it Brunello red? I think it is which is quite rare for the GT. And I really fancied one of those. And I found one on eBay 
and you should never buy things on cars on eBay. So it's, it's a really bad idea. I didn't pay very much money for it, but I, so I, yeah, I don't, I don't feel I, I lost out too much. But I, yeah, the second one it was a lovely, lovely color, and I swapped over the interior because the interior for the, the the diesel one was a lovely, lovely pale natural leather, really light. Because the one thing about the GT is it's it's very dark because it's got very little glass. Yeah, um, and and I I I much prefer a light interior. So I actually swapped over the interiors between the two, sold the diesel with a dark black leather interior, and and I had my my Maranello red, uh, Brunello red GT V6 for for a couple of years. But I'd had by that time I'd moved up to the farm. Uh, I was running the farm, writing books, and not driving anywhere because both of my jobs are at home. Uh, yeah. You know, I I I so I my and annual annual mileage went from about eighteen thousand down to about three. Well, the GT was off the road for uh, for a year. I just put it on Sawn because I didn't need a car at all. And and I had the GTA as well at that point, a sport wagon which was also sitting in a barn doing nothing. So in the end, I, I thought, well, I, I'll 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 sell it. I, I was I, I can't remember whether it was through the Facebook. I think it might have been through Facebook, the, the, the Alfa Romeo and his club Facebook pages. And I got in touch with Dan Cunningham, who runs Autoluso Penrith, and he was quite interested in it. And he did actually buy it off me. But actually, when he got it back to the back to his workshop, he discovered that it was completely rusted through in the in the, in the, the floor pan. So he stripped it down for parts. And that V6 is, I don't know where it's ended up. Uh, but, uh, that, but that is a problem with the GTs, particularly the earlier ones. They, they had a tendency for their floor pans to rust through and you don't notice until you know something falls off and suddenly it's an MOT failure or whatever. So I, I don't want to spoil too much about the um, the GTA sport wagon because we're, we're in the privileged position of having an article in the next issue which will come out, comes out in a couple of weeks time talking about the, the restoration for that. So you've still got the Duetto, you've got the GTA sport wagon but I, I, you've hinted at it already, you don't get to drive them very much do you? I don't. I don't do any driving at all. Uh, the, uh, the Duetto for a couple of years, I did about 15 miles a year, which was to the MOT station and back. And partly because I just don't have the time. I, yeah, I, 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 I run the farm and I write two novels a year. I have been doing that for the last nine years, and uh, it just doesn't really leave much time for anything else. But um, also, I, as I said before, I don't really drive, have anywhere to drive. And the, the, the last time I took the Duetto for a decent spin was a couple of years ago, midlife crisis and everything. And, and I, I started hankering after a, an, 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 another Alceta. And there was one for sale uh, not very far from here, about, I guess it must be about 25 miles or so, to the other side of Tim Ross. And uh, I went to have a look at it. But rather than driving over in the in, in, in the in the farm pickup or whatever, I, I thought well, I'll dig out the. It's a nice day. I'll dig out the Duetto. Drove over there. Had a lovely afternoon driving the GTV around, um, and and really enjoyed it. Very ne- very nearly bought it. But then I got back home and I'd really enjoyed driving the Duetto because I'd such a long time since I'd gone anywhere yeah. further than the nearest town. Uh, so I thought actually I don't need the the, the Alfetta. I just I've got a perfectly good Alfa Romeo. And I just need to drive it. But yes, yeah, so I, I actually want to, uh, that's got a really bad paint job, but it was finally restored. They did an absolutely atrocious paint job on it. So I, I'm kind of toying with the idea of stripping it back down again and getting the paint job done properly. But my big problem, as you'll know from having read the article that I've written, is that that probably means that the car will be off the road for a year or two, and at which point I'll be doing no driving at all. 
uh, and who knows whether when I'll ever get back into it. I used to love driving. I used to drive hundreds of miles. Um, you know, any excuse, drop of a hat to go for a go for a long drive. But I just kind of fallen out of the habit. Our, our traditional closing question on these podcasts is, you know, what what would you like to buy next? But it sounds as though there wouldn't be a lot of point apart from looking at it. Well, there's there's, I mean, there's so many cars I'd, I'd love. I I I I mean, I'd love a a, a, um, a Julia Quadrifoglio. Uh, I gave my detective inspector McLean. I gave him one of those. He used to drive around in a in a uh, Bertone 105, um, which was he'd inherited from his father, and that was kind of. I thought if I put Alfa Romeos in the books, maybe Alfa Romeo would sponsor me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but they didn't, sadly. Not even the Italian publisher. Uh, I, I said to the Italian publisher because it's the first three have been translated into Italian, and. Um, and I said, you could pay me in, you know, in a classic Alfa Romeo instead of actual, you know, euros. But they, they didn't know. They just paid me in euros. Very boring. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's go back. You said you've been doing that for for nine years. Let's go back nine or ten years. How did you get into becoming an author? Well, I've always, it's always been something I wanted to do. Uh, and I, I, farming is just this kind of a fallback position. And I um, I've always been writing. My first story that I ever had published and got paid money for. Uh, was a comic script that I wrote for 2000 AD comic, which was published in 1993. And I thought, great, I'm going to be a comics writer. This is what this is my career. But it did, that didn't really happen. Uh, I, I sent them lots and lots more stories, but they never bought anything. So I, I then had to actually do a proper job to earn a living. But I was always writing. And um, before moving down to Wales, I lived in Edinburgh for a while. And before that, I lived in Aberdeen. Um, in Aberdeen, I was great friends with a chap called Stuart McBride, who's another crime fiction author. And he, um, I was writing fantasy and comics and things, and, and, and he was doing similar. But then he switched to writing crime fiction and got published uh, and introduced me to a lot of crime fiction people. And he said, you should, you should try writing crime fiction. So I, that, that's kind of what I did. I, I took a character that I'd, I'd written a comic script about um, this chap called Tony McLean, who was a policeman who could sort of possibly see the ghosts and demons and things that were behind all the evil things going on. And I, and I thought, well, I'll modernise and bring him into the modern world and, 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 and write a, you know, a crime story. And so because he, he'd originally been set in Edinburgh, the stories were set in Edinburgh. And that was back in, I think I wrote the first one of those in about 2005 and um, sent it out to publishers. And they all came back and said, oh, it's really good. We really like this story, but there's no market for crime where you get to the end of the book and it turns out it was a demon or a ghost or whatever. There's, you know, crime and supernatural don't mix. Uh, so I couldn't get a publisher for that. And uh, I put it in for a couple of com uh, prestigious competitions in the crime fiction world. And I, I got shortlisted for the first two books in the series, but didn't win. And again, publishers were calling them in and saying, can we, you know, we, we, we we love the writing, but you know, can you take the ghosts out or whatever? And I said, well, no, that's the whole point of the books. You can't really take them out. And then eventually, I, I, this was around about the same time that my parents died and I was taking over the farm and I didn't have enough time to concentrate too much on the writing. So I decided, well, the first two books in the series, which I'd written and which had obviously been well received by publishers, they just didn't know how to sell them. I would self-publish. This was around about the time that the Kindle, Amazon's Kindle was really taking off. So I put them out and I hit upon this brilliant idea with the first book, Natural Causes, to give it away for free for a while. 
and people so people could download it for free, read it, and if they liked it, they could buy the second one. And I thought I might sell a couple of thousand copies over the course of a year, but it absolutely took off. It was the spring of 2012, and it went from nothing to selling 2,000 copies a day or being downloaded 2,000 copies a day. And then the, the second book, I brought the second book out quite quickly, and that was selling a thousand copies a day. I was getting paid for that. It was like, wow, this is a brilliant. <laughs> uh, and I, I went that year to, because uh, I had, as I had been doing every year, to the, the big crime fiction festival, literary festival, which is in Harrogate every year in July. And um, everyone was coming up saying, this is brilliant, James. How have you done this? What have you done? I had no idea. I just put these things up there and people like them. But all the publishers were suddenly interested as well. And, uh, and that year I managed to get uh, I got an agent and I got a, a really good publishing deal with Penguin. And it just, it took off from there. And, and I haven't really sat down. Well, I, I haven't really stood up since because I've been sat down at my desk <laughs> writing. And the, the book that I'm working on at the moment will be my 20th published novel, uh, which will come out in February of next year. So about nine years after the first one, uh, which gives you some indication as to why I don't have time to drive much. Indeed. So have you created a new genre of um, of supernatural crime friction or is it still pretty much just you? Uh, no, I don't think I've created it. I think there were there always were there were some people doing stuff and and, and if you go back to the origins of of crime fiction, you have people like Wilkie Collins and the Moonstone and 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 and, and Arthur Conan Doyle, that that mystical mysticism is all all built into it anyway. And it's only a fairly recent thing where everything's got to be completely rational and you get this the concept of the police procedural and the author who goes out on patrol with the policeman to see how it's done properly so he gets it right in his books and everything and uh, and, and and they kind of forgot that stories are you know to start with their fiction and anything goes uh, but there are, i mean there are some other great authors who've you know, long before i was doing it were, were doing that kind of thing John Connolly, for instance, has been a, a great Irish Irish author with his his Charlie Parker books. The first one was a kind of spooky but quite straight novel, and they've just got more and more supernatural with each one. <laughs> uh, and, and he's he's a brilliant writer doing that sort of thing. And um, Sarah Pinborough is another one. I mean, her her thriller Behind Her Eyes was recently done on the television, a huge success on Netflix, which is you know it's it's. On the face of it, it's a contemporary thriller, but it's also got a, a supernatural core running right through the middle of it. Um, yeah, so there's, there's lots of other authors doing it. But what I what I what I kind of came up against was publishing. The publishing industry is very small C conservative sometimes, and they they didn't know how to sell it. They didn't want to put anything. And if you look at my books now, if you pick them up in the in the shop and look at the blurb on the back. It doesn't mention ghosts and demons and ghouls and things. It might say dark forces of evil or something, but it won't say anything more than that. Because if they put that in, then it gets put in the horror section or the fantasy section, and you only sell about 10%, as many as you would as if it was in the crime section. Uh, so they, they, they come hard down on the, the police procedural side of things and kind of gloss over the fact that it's I, I like to twist all these supernatural themes and elements into the books and how hard is it to maintain the balance on that because there is a there's a very strong you know very convincing police procedural element to the books and then the the supernatural mm. bit is is kind of always there in the background and twisted in and and pops up at at the right yeah. times so, well i i kind of approach the books 
in my mind, I know that such and such a character is is not entirely human or such and such has happened by non-human influences. But Tony McLean, my character, doesn't believe in all that stuff. So there's always a search for a rational explanation. And and I like that that's kind of how I treat it. So I I have all of the the, the police procedural stuff, you know, the, um, you know, going through the motion of the investigation and finding the clues and tracking down the people who've done the stuff. But I've always just got in the background, and I try not to be absolutely come straight up and say such and such a character is the devil incarnate, wandering around the world in Edinburgh and making life difficult for people. Uh, I, I just drop hints rather than come out and say it. So you can read these books if you if you don't want to, you know, accept that the the Middle Eastern jinn wandering around the city uh, devouring children or whatever. There is another way of reading it so that it's not quite so obvious. Uh, and that's what, kind of what I like, to, to, to be a bit ambiguous about it. It doesn't always work. Sometimes you just have to say, sod it. There's no explanation for what happened other than it was a ghost. <laughs> he woke up and it was all a dream. Well, that's um, always the problem, though. That's cause, because if you write um, a really, really complicated whodunit uh, and, and everyone's trying to guess whodunit and it turns out at the end that it was a ghost, then you're letting your readers down. And I really don't want to do that. So I, I, you know, and I don't tend to write who done it. So usually you know who's done it from the first page. Uh, yeah. It's more a how done it or a why done it, and a how do they find out and what what goes horribly wrong whilst they're doing it. So it's more, I, yeah, that kind of story rather than, uh, which is how I can weave the, the supernatural stuff in. I think. So obviously, given given our listeners, I've got to ask the really important questions about the the novels. So. When when did the um the one oh five enter the the scene in terms of your writing process? So did the comic strip version of Tony McLean drive an alpha or? No, it was very much the, the when I was writing the first book and uh, and I, I he needed a car and he borrowed his mate's car um, for a while, but then and there was an early scene where uh, which got deleted from natural causes where he borrowed his friend's car and went down to this other house which he didn't even know existed which his parents had owned and he thought had been sold or whatever but turned out it was still his and the car was there um in a garage and he had to get it just sort of refettled and restored before he could use it I, I changed that slightly and just decided that it was his grandmother who'd who'd restored it but kept it um under wraps and, and he just needed a car he'd not needed a car before but he, he suddenly needed one and it was there and handy and i, I was slightly worried about sort of going down the Inspector Morse line and having him being this idiosyncratic detective driving around in, in, in a in a sort of 40, 50-year-old car. But um, it seemed to go down quite well with the readers, so I, I kept it for a while. And, and without giving away too many spoilers, because obviously we'd like everybody to go and buy all the all 20 of the books, the 105 meets a, an unfortunate end, doesn't it? What was the decision behind Twice, that? actually. Yes, at, the end, at, at the end of, of book three, a, a, a body falls from about three, four stories up onto its roof. Doesn't do it much much good, but he gets it restored. And then I can't remember which book it is, but it it, it has a horrible crash. He has a horrible crash in really, really bad snowy weather, like it's polluted weather in the city and, 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 and ice on the roads. But we drop hints as to whether he's lost control or whether it's actually been attacked by some weird creature of myth. Uh, written in Bones, that's the one. 
which I, I love that book because it starts with them finding a body in, in the top of a tree in the middle of the city. Uh, and and uh, I, I, just kind of a really mad idea that came to me whilst <laughs> I was trying to think of something else. Um, but yeah, so it, at the end of that book, it's it's a in a sorry state. It's on a on on a on a the back of a, a pickup truck with a a, a you know, flatbed truck with a tarpaulin over it, and uh, I don't know what's happened to it. I don't know whether he's going to get it restored. But um, in the interim, he gets himself a, a, a Julia Quadrifoglio because I was still ever hopeful that Alfa Romeo UK <laughs> might sponsor me, uh, and he drove that for a couple of um, he drove that for a couple of books, and then it got nicked. And, and and parked sideways in, in a shop and written off. So uh, at the moment, he's tooling around in his his girlfriend's Renault Zoe electric car, which is a bit of a come down, uh, yeah. but easier to park. Uh, yes. And any plans for a, an Alpha replacement? Well, I, I, the problem is there's, there's not much choice these days, is there? He gets a Julia or a Stelvio. And yes. I, I, he doesn't strike me as an SUV type. Um, no. Yeah. I, I might get I might get him I might get the 105 restored and get that back, but uh, at the moment he's he's um, he's uh, he's pottering around town in this little Renault. But as soon as he has to go any great distance in it, he's going to realise it's not so good. I was devastated when you told me about the Julia because obviously you know everybody said when the lockdown started, everybody who'd never written a book said we're going to take this opportunity of being stuck at home and, and write a novel. Um, and I actually ended up falling so far behind reading novels that I'm, I'm a couple of books behind in the series. But uh, on the police procedural part, I obviously, like most readers, I've not worked for Police Scotland. So I don't know how authentic the the policing side of it is. But how much how much research do you have to do to, to make it authentic enough for, for people not to poke holes on it? A lot less than you would expect is the simple answer. I... I um... The, the worst thing is the first two books I wrote, A, I was living in Wales whilst I wrote them, uh, and B, uh, it was Lothian and Borders Police then. Before, before then, police, Scotland was split up into regions much the same way as England is for the police force. But then they had this brilliant idea to, to amalgamate the whole lot into this thing called Police Scotland. So I had to relearn the way everything works. Uh, at the same time, I have to admit, as most of the police officers were relearning how everything works, because for the first <laughs> year or 18 months, none of them had a clue. But I I never really wanted to write police procedurals. I didn't really like that idea of, you know, writing something really, really close to, and using all the jargon and uh, and everything. I know some some writers do it really, really well, but I, I didn't want to have to do that level of research. I, I'm not very good at going and asking people for help. So the idea of picking up the phone and seeing if I could find a police officer who would, who would talk me through procedure kind of left me a bit cold. So I tend to approach the book where if I find myself, whilst I'm writing a scene, um, obsessing about what would be the correct way, that the, the right way the police would approach something, I'll, I'll tend to go back and rewrite the scene so that I don't need to know that. So they, they are technically police procedurals, but there's not an awful lot of procedure in them. And a lot of it is just, you know, it skirts around the actual detail, but I just, I, I just always think, is it plausible? You know, are they doing something stupid? Or is this more or less what you see than, you know, when you see news reports rather than watching the bill or whatever? I, mean, I get a lot of information from watching the bill uh, or... Um, <laughs> You know, reading reading the books of Stuart McBride and Ian Rankin and, and people like that. Uh, and I do have a few 
police contacts who I can run stuff by if I need to. But I tend not to. I, I tend to try and avoid doing that because I think it you, you run the, the risk of bogging the story down if you go off on a great tangent explaining the, the exact procedure for, for, for finding a lost child or whatever. Uh, it doesn't move the story on. It stops it. And it, I mean, the other thing that I've... I, I, I did a, an event at Bloody Scotland, the big Scottish crime fiction festival, a couple of years back with... Dame Professor Sue Black, or is she Professor Dame Sue Black? I don't know. So the, the forensic... Um, the order's important. Fr- yeah, I, I, the order is important, <laughs> and I always get it wrong. Uh, she's a really fascinating person, and uh, she's a fr- yeah, forensic um, scientist, and, and she has developed all sorts of techniques for identifying you know, how people have been murdered and, and, or whatever. And she gets quite often in, asked to be an expert witness at trial. And she finds the biggest problem is that she can stand up there and she can explain to the jury and, and the judge and, the, and, and, and whatever uh, uh, you know, some, uh, what something is. And half of the time, the jury don't believe her because they've seen CSI and it's different on CSI. <laughs> uh, and I kind of, I, I worry about that. You know, if I'm pretending that what I write is, is absolutely correct procedure, then p- people might buy into that and think that the things that happen in my book happen in real life. Uh, and I kind of want to shy away from that a bit and, and you know, get rid of the myth of the the, 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 you know, the the writer researching everything down to the nth degree. Because at the end of the day, there's ghosts and ghouls and demons running around in my stories. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's difficult to get the procedural bits of that right. Hmm. Although I guess you know, there, there is established mythology that you, know, you kind of need to, if not follow, that at least rec- you know, recognise that this stuff you haven't originated some of this stuff yeah i mean i probably do more research into that side of things than i do into the police side of things the the the, the last one um that came out at the beginning of this year what will burn that's got witches in it i did a lot of reading up about the, the the persecution of witches in scotland in the in the 16th and 17th centuries and uh yeah which is fascinating stuff not much of it made it into the books but uh i did read an awful lot about it and and so yes i yeah there is there is an accepted um mythology behind things like you know gins genies and, 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 and you know it's not all just rubbing a brass lamp and three wishes uh there's all sorts of, of stuff if you dig a bit deeper into, into the stories behind them and that it all feeds into the stories it makes makes them much more interesting much more interesting and than dry procedure anyway do you have in mind a, a kind of longer term arc because i mean he's he's getting older he's getting more senior you know at, at some point in in the real world he'd retire i suppose he could end up in the um, in the cellar doing in the basement doing cold in cases in the basement <laughs> yeah um, well, that's what happened with that's what happened with um, Inspector Rebus, I think, because he had to retire, and then and then Ian Rankin brought him back, um, working on old cases. Uh, Tony's got a few. Tony McLean's got a few years left in him yet. It, uh, it's probably no great secret to to tell you that he gets demoted. He, he never wanted to be Chief Inspector, so he he gets demoted at the um, the beginning of What Will Burn. So he's back where he wants to be, just an inspector, so he can actually go out and do. Uh, it's all that's another one of these problems with these stories though because you get i think peter james is is is, is he chief superintendent roy grace now or something he's it's really really quite senior would never go anywhere near a crime scene but because it's fiction and because you want your character to be out there asking the difficult questions and chasing down the crooks you you you, you do that anyway 
Whereas you know, anything above inspector and to a certain extent inspectors themselves are management jobs. They, they're, they're not doing that. They're, they're coordinating the sergeants and the constables to go and do the actual groundwork and, and running the investigation from a desk. Uh, but that doesn't make a very interesting book. Mm. So, um, and Grace, of course, is another um, another alpha driver. I think it was a yes, one, 147 uh, in the books and a, a mm. sport wagon in the um, or a 156, 159. So Peter James the... himself, I don't know if he still does it, but he used to do um, a bit of motor racing, classic motor racing, but he, he raced BMWs. Um, right. Uh, I told him he should have got himself a 105, but yeah, <laughs> he, he never did. <laughs> so that that's Inspector McLean, which is, is the big series. The, there's been another couple of series. Where's Constance Fairchild now? Well, Constance Fairchild um, was kind of a spin-off from McLean and I, I, I moved publishers um, from Penguin to um, to Headline, uh, an imprint at Headline, uh, and they wanted a new character um, as well as more McLean books. So I came up with with Con Fairchild. Uh, there's been I'm just doing the edits on the th on her third book now, so that'll be out later this year. She drives an old Volvo, so one of those um, five cylinder um, Porsche engined. Uh, I think Porsche did the design for that engine, the T5s, which um, my other half drives an old Volvo now. So uh, that's kind of. <laughs> I'll be careful what I was going to say. I was going to say it suits her character, but yeah, I remember. Uh, I remember when the when the Volvo they, they did the BTCC with those Volvos, and um, and they did really well um, at, uh, up against 155s at um, at Knock Hill, just up the road from here. Uh, it was amazing going going rallying, going racing in a Volvo estate. Who'd have thought it? Uh, but yeah, uh, so yeah, she, she's she's working for the NCA, which is kind of the, the UK whites of the UK equivalent of the FBI, I guess, National Crime Agency. So she gets to go a bit further afield and, and look into other things. The book that she's in at the moment, that I'm writing, um, editing at the moment, she's she's spending mostly in Wales. So I'm revisiting my old Welsh haunts. <laughs> And my other series is a um, is completely different. It's fantasy. It's a you know, dragons and magic, Game of Thrones style thing, which I wrote most of when I was in Wales. And it's also inspired by the Welsh language and mythology, and features as its main character a dragon called Sir Benfro, which Sir Benfro is the uh, is the Welsh for Pembrokeshire. And I, I always remember when we were we were doing um, evening classes, learning learning to speak Welsh, and we did the Welsh counties and and my partner, she, she pointed at Sibenfro and said, that's got to be the name of the dragon. And that was kind of the, the, the start of that. So um, whereas my, most people might have thought that was a funny joke, I went away and wrote about 600,000 words of a fantasy series on it. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks for that fascinating insight into the process behind the novels. But before you go, I'd just like to touch briefly on your next published work, your article for the next issue of Alfa Romeo Driver. How did you become custodian of the GTA Sport Wagon? It was quite an accidental purchase as well. Uh, I put in the, I think it was in the, in the GT register column. I put that I was looking for a V6, and I wanted. I, I ideally, my ideal car was a Alpha Red with the tan or the very pale leather interior. And I got a phone call or a letter, an email from this guy, over uh, just outside Peterborough, saying that he'd got a red V6. But it turned out it was the GTA sport wagon rather than, 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 than a GT. Um, and it didn't really have tan. It had the black with the tan leather in, yep. in the seats. But I went and had a look at it anyway, because why not? Uh, <laughs> and bought it. Uh, and it's a great, it's a lovely car. But 
like all my cars, I don't get to drive it very much. It's sat in a car coon in in in, a, in the um, one of the farm sheds at the moment. Uh, it needs a it needs its cam belt service and an MOT, and then I can put it back on the road. But I need to get this novel finished first, and then maybe the one after that, and the one after that. <laughs> and there are lots of one five six GTA parts that are getting pretty hard to find, aren't there? I know you had some. There, problems there, with... there's, there's getting to that little bit where people are remanufacturing now. So there's a few things which you can't get for love or money. But that, but there's there's quite a few, particularly for the V6. There's quite a lot of, yeah. You, know, you can you can get all the air hoses and things like that. I need to replace. There's a metal pipe that goes uh, the, the the coolant pipe uh, underneath the front of the radiator. That's that's rusted through, so it's dropping coolant all over the floor. I've got a stainless steel replacement for that. I just haven't fitted it yet. Uh, so and there's a there's a there's quite a community for the for, for the Busso engine oh, cars yes. out there. So I think we'll be keeping it on the road for a little while. I completely understand the process of accidentally buying a Busso-powered GTA. I went to buy a 2.4 diesel sport wagon and came home having put down a deposit on a 147 GTA. And there was one of those involved in your eventual GTA purchase as well, wasn't there? I took my my GT to um, Jamie Porter to be serviced one time because uh, my sister lived over that side of the country. So it kind of fitted in with a trip to go and see her, drop that in. And he gave me an old 164 with no clutch. As a, as a custody car, it was a nightmare to drive around for a day whilst it was being serviced. But when I got, when I went and picked it up, he took me for a little drive in his 147 GTA that he had at the time. And that kind of, because I'd been, th- I'd really wanted to get a V6. That's probably what made me then go and actually start looking for a, for for a V6 GT after that, having having driven that up and down the Royston bypass at stupid miles an hour. <laughs> uh, Jamie's got a lot to answer for. Most of it good. Thanks for taking the time this afternoon, James. It's been fascinating talking to you, and good luck with the latest novel and with the carving. That's all we have time for this week, but we'll be back in two weeks' time on the 6th of June with, amongst other things, a preview of the forthcoming National Alpha Day at Bister Heritage. Episode 33 will be available at 1.30pm from iTunes, YouTube, Podbean, the club website, and anywhere good podcasts can be found. Until then, stay safe. Stay <laughs> safe.